tonight I'd like to talk about faith and surrender. Almost all religions, could you turn it down just a little bit? Almost all religions are built on faith, yet in the Buddhist teachings, the teachings which we're talking about here, there's really very little emphasis put on this word faith or belief. In the Buddhist tradition, there is an element of faith, um, and yet it's more in the sense that it signifies devotion, devotion to the Buddha, to the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, and the Sangha, which is the order of the monks and nuns or the community of like-minded people. Yet faith really has little, very little to do with Buddhism. In Christianity, usually faith is in something unseen, unknown, and a promise of something to come in the future. In the teachings of the Buddha, the emphasis is on the seen, on the knowing, on the understanding, on our direct living experience, not so much on faith or belief. There's a Pali term, ehipasiko, which means come and see for yourself. This is really a very beautiful aspect of the teachings in Buddhism. It's not to come and believe what is heard, believe what is told you, but to really look for yourself to see what's true to listen and then check it out, come back to your own experience and see if it's valid, what we're saying. There's a phrase in the ancient Buddhist text, realizing as one sees a gem in the palm. What this means is, if I tell you I have a gem hidden in the folded palm of my hand, the question of belief arises because you don't see it yourself. But if I unclench my fist and show you the gem, then you see it for yourself and the question of belief does not arise. Belief arises when there is no seeing. The moment you see, the question of belief disappears. There is just truth. That is truth, what you see is the truth. There's the Pali phrase, nana dasana, which is seeing with wisdom, not believing through faith. This kind of believing, I think, would be a blind faith, not a faith in our own experience. But even though in this practice there isn't much emphasis on faith, for me, this kind of direct seeing and investigation is what has actually brought me faith or trust. If you sometimes people have problems with the word faith and they can't really hear 
the talk because their associations are so strong with that word. So sometimes the word trust feels more resonant. But this kind of faith that I feel is not a faith in something that I have learned, something that I've learned intellectually from books or from an outer authority, but from the direct evidence of seeing that what I've been told is true. And, and I can see that in my own experience. The faith in the truth of my own experience. In Buddhist texts, there is a word, another Pali word called sada. And this is usually translated as faith or belief. But according to Wapola Rahula, who wrote What the Buddha Taught, he translates the word sada as confidence born out of conviction. And I think that's really beautiful to think of faith as confidence born out of conviction. If you see something again and again, you know it's true, and nothing can sway you from that truth. And then it is your truth. And this is the faith that I'd like to explore, this faith as non-intellectual understanding, faith as wisdom, what I call the heart's wisdom as making a distinction from mind's wisdom, from the intellect. I very much like this word heart because it's a word that reflects to me an aspect of ourselves that is not mind, that is not the thinking mind, what we usually associate wisdom or intelligence with. The thinking mind that wants to control our reality, that wants to figure things out and analyze and, and evaluate and have everything understood but the heart seems to me to be this quiet space of being, an aspect of ourselves that knows what's right, an inner wisdom, yet it's not mine, it's not yours, it's not personal, it's not self, but it's something that we all have some people call it God. Some people call it intelligence. But when we quiet down, and in this kind of environment, when we come to a place like this, we quiet down, the mind quiets down, the body quiets down, and we can begin to touch this. We can begin to sense this, that which we all have. I think that inner wisdom or that faith may be responsible for getting many of you here to this retreat because some of you didn't know what you were coming into. It was completely an unknown situation, but something moved you, something pushed you and brought you here. There, this, this inner wisdom, this wisdom is in each one of us 
However, it does need to be awakened. It needs to be discovered and realized. But it's not something that's awakened and then we own it, something that is awakened and then we possess this faith or this wisdom. But it's faith as an activity, as a way of being, as a way of life, as a way of affirming every moment what is truth for you, what is truth in your life. It seems that everyone has faith or has some belief or some trust in their lives. But it seems to matter what we actually place our faith in. Most people put their faith in things they they can control or they can manipulate or they can escape from just in case it doesn't work out. People put their faith in relationships maybe a a partner or a spouse. People put faith in security in a job or maybe a stable government or they put their faith in a religious belief. Many people put their faith in a meditation technique. But ultimately it seems that one places their faith in their mind And this is why knowledge is regarded as the epitome of human development. Because to possess knowledge is to have power over reality. This is what people think. They they can get enough knowledge. This will give them power to control. And to the extent to which one knows is the effect one can be at ease with reality. This is the assumption. To the extent that one knows, they can trust. They can let go. And this is the sense of control. They can let go because their environment seems controlled. But these structures that we create, these structures of relationship, of job security, of religion, of meditation, of mind, even the structure of mind. These get created to hold back the tide of chaos, to give us some sense of security, an illusion of security from the unknown because we don't know what's going to happen. So we create a pseudo world affirming the rules and definitions of this world every day and put faith in these structures. Yet these objects of our faith never quite live up to our demands and expectations. And it seems that people need to make these demands in order to be able to trust, in order to be able to put their faith in something. It's, it's almost as if there's a bargain that gets set up. I will love you if you fulfill these requirements. I will be your friend as long as you're this kind of person. I will trust you if you act in this way. Or I will do this meditation technique if I get these results. 
if I get some guarantee that the pain stops in my body or I start feeling happier in my life or the, or the, the unpleasant uh, emotions stop, I don't have to feel as much fear as I do in my life. It's a conditional trust. We place conditions on the objects of our faith, but it doesn't work. I'm not sure I would really call this faith. These objects never quite meet up to our demands and expectations, and then we live in perpetual disappointment, perpetual fear, perpetual chaos, and then perpetual activity to halt this chaos. Only this activity is a fruitless circle of activity, going nowhere, accomplishing nothing. Just go around and around and around, wondering why there's so much pain. And then we blame our inability to trust on everything around us. It's their fault. If only they would be different, if only the situation was different. And we become the victims of the world, projecting our anger onto everyone around us. I had the opportunity of taking my 12-year-old nephew on a holiday, quote, unquote. And we went to Los Angeles. And he does have difficulty functioning in the world. He is having some problems uh, adjusting as he's growing older. But I really got to see how this anger, his anger at his sense of feeling victimized, gets projected outward. He's angry for things that have been done to him that he feels he has no control over, although the world does not meet up to his demands and expectations, and it's everybody else's fault. He doesn't see any sense of responsibility that he has in his pain right now. It seems that most people realize they must trust something to survive. Because it seems that the extent that there is no trust, we feel separated from reality. We're not able to function as we want to in the world. The extreme case of this would be psychosis, someone who is completely cut off and isolated. There's nowhere to put faith or trust. Everything seems chaotic and unsettled. And these people are usually considered either a threat or useless. To be ordinary, to have some sense of ordinariness, to function in the world requires for us to reach out, to touch our world, to touch people, to touch our situations, and to be affected by them, to allow ourselves to be affected, to participate fully in what's happening in our lives. And this does require some kind of trust in some form. But it's not easy to trust. It's some, I hear so many times from people that it feels hard to, to trust, to take risks to reach out. 
And it seems it's because reality is an unknown. What's going to happen next is an unknown. And, it, and it's full of dangers. And we become afraid to live fully, afraid to participate, afraid to have faith. On the last retreat that I was teaching in Switzerland, there was one man that I spent a lot of time with who had many memories of hard, dark times in his life. And his most current present thought was, it's going to be the same in the future. It's not going to change. And his memories were so strong they were, that they were conditioning his present reality and his future reality. And he was living with this fairly ongoing present anxiety, one that was in anticipation of the coming doom just a sense of it's just going to always be like this. It's just not going to change. And he would often feel in a panic. There was a great deal of despair to find out what he could do to stop this chain of events. He wasn't able to trust that he could let go of the memories because in a very odd way, the memories gave him some sense of control, gave him some sense of that he knew what would happen. But to let go of the memories meant really stepping into the unknown, saying, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it is going to be different. It, maybe it could be worse. But it's really funny that there's a sense of feeling in control, the memories giving some sense of control because out of the fear of being out of control, when they, he thinks that's being in control, I mean, that's not being out of control. That's already totally out of control. <laughs> in such an odd way that the mind thinks it's in control. But it's not a way of life that I'm interested in. We have a tendency to identify and function with our, within our own little world. Many of us withdraw, contract, pull back, and remain in this secure environment. But yet, many of us find it's a prison. It's not a safe, happy place at all. I took my nephew to Disneyland in Los Angeles, and I was so interested in the fact that he only wanted to go on the very safe, very safe, benign rides, like the, uh, the cars that you can drive around on the track. And he wanted to do that again and again and again. Because once he did it, it was familiar and he felt safe there. He didn't want to extend and try something new, try something that was unfamiliar. It was his way of creating a safe world for himself in this very chaotic place. To function in the world, we must reach out. We must, must, must touch it, deal with it, 
and take risks. Move beyond the familiar. Move beyond our comfort zones. On a retreat is such a good place to look at how we create safe, secure environments. I mean, it's so, it's almost set up in a way that we can, we have this zabutan and a zafu, and it becomes our, our little world. And so much goes on in this little space here. We can either use it as a place to be secure and comfortable, or we could use it as a place to really expand beyond our limits, take some risks that we've never taken before. So you can take a look and see how you're using your time here. Is there a tendency to create a nice, safe, secure environment? Or do you find that you are able to explore these, these boundaries of where you remain safe? It seems that we want to be able to control how things will go but it's impossible to control all the factors, all the forces. When I was at Gaia House in England uh, two months ago, there was a friend who was coming to visit me, and then one day, she, went, she was on her way home. She was on a motorbike, a little motorbike, and she um, fell off and broke her leg, broke her kneecap and wound up, instead of going home, she was in the hospital for two weeks and in rehabilitation for two months, Had, couldn't go back to work. Her whole life completely changed. She was just <laughs> on her way home, <laughs> and everything changed. It seems that we must come to terms with this lack of control, with this changeability, with this not knowing not knowing what's going to happen next. The mind always finds itself in situations not of its own choosing. It seems that it constantly feels victimized by the unknown forces and then rallies defenses. But there's an interesting thing that we can look at here. It seems that the mind does not see that these situations are brought about by the heart itself. And if we use the word heart here for wisdom, intelligence, or God, it's the heart that's actually bringing these about. It's the heart which is constantly battering at your mental defenses that you may come to a true relationship with yourself. It's all to come to a true relationship, to come to truth. Jay Janot wrote this book, Do You See What I See? And I find it a really exquisite, exquisite writings on this model of seeing. He says, the mind attempts to bring all knowledge, all reality within the realm of its own awareness a hopeless, futile task. The attempt is made in hope that all reality can then be brought under control and order and safety thereby ensured. But reality itself is truth, and it already possesses order and form. 
The mind in search of truth and security is like a fish in search of water. It is already all around you. It is the very medium of your existence. When one comes to radical understanding of the universality of truth, the presence of truth right now, the mind can relax and surrender to reality in full knowledge and faith that it is surrendering to truth and security. That that which we want is already here. This is the truth speaking to us. It is the truth that we see. But it's so hard to accept this present moment as truth. And acceptance is also faith, trust, trusting in the truth of what we see. There's a story that I heard long ago that was one of my favorite, is one of my favorite Dharma stories. It's about a farmer from a rather poor family. And one day his horse ran away. How unfortunate, because he really needed his horse to be able to run his farm. But a few months later, the horse returned with a very fine stallion. How fortunate. Now he had another horse that he could use on the farm, and it made his house quite rich by this fine horse. And the son loved to ride the horse, but one day the son fell off and broke his hip. How unfortunate. Now the son couldn't help around the farm. Years later, a war broke out, and all the able-bodied men had to go to war. But the son was lame. How fortunate. So the son and the father could stay at the farm and survive their years together. It's this not knowing how quick we are to judge, to think that we know what's good in our lives and what's bad in our lives. I'm sure you have your own personal examples, your own events in your lives that seem like crises, but they've turned out to be very good fortune, whether it's through some learning or some financial gain or whatever it is. We can't judge. Another story exemplifies this point, I think. This is a story from How Can I Help about a woman who lost her vision. When I lost my vision, I had been very self-sufficient and together. I was raising five children. I was working. I was volunteering in my community. I was independent enough to be contemplating a divorce from a bad marriage. I'd even given an attorney $500 just before I, just before I had to go into the hospital. I began to find myself knocking things over and stumbling around. I went to an ophthalmologist, then to a neurologist, then to a radiologist, then to a neurosurgeon. And finally, a doctor said, you have a growth in your brain. If you don't have surgery, it will continue to grow, and it will take your life, just like that. 
The operation took seven and a half hours. The doctor said he almost lost me twice. He'd removed a tumor the size of a hen's egg. All I could see was the faintest bit of light. It didn't hit me until I got home. I didn't recognize myself. I went into the hospital with long hair. I came out with short. I went in at 145 pounds. I came out at 175, wearing my mother's dress. I went in and I could see. I left and I couldn't. It wasn't me. And things were bad at home. I couldn't get a divorce now. I was too dependent. I tried to do things for myself, but it often just created more trouble. My youngest daughter didn't want to be seen on the street with me. She was ashamed. I felt so bitter. But I kept pushing my feelings away. What had happened? Why me? I just wanted out of there. One nice fall day, I told my husband I was going out. I went down the elevator and out of the house. I got to the corner and I just stopped. I stood there, expecting any minute he'd come down and join me. He never came. I just stood there on the corner. A lot happened on that corner. I saw my past life. I recalled how lonely and helpless I'd felt as a little girl. And there I was now, just like a child again, only with five of my own. I stayed there a long time. Finally, I said to myself, well, here you are, and there's no place to go. It's time you brought a little help into your life. So I went into rehabilitation, and I told them everything I felt. I gave them everything. I gave them my shame and my anger and my fear. I felt it was the truth. And if it was the truth, then how could I be helpless? You don't suffer from the truth. The truth sets you free. Of course it was hard work coming to terms with change, but after a while you have nothing left to hide. You want to bring it all out. You want to make room to receive help. And when you're with a lot of people who are also trying to do that, you get a lot of support. Us blind folks working together, the more I felt that, the more I found myself beginning to offer help as much as ask for it. When you begin to see with that inner eye, that inner eye everyone has, it all changes. Everyone is human. Everyone is God's child. Everyone is helpless one way or another. And everyone is helpful, too. We're all here for each other. That's how it is. And we have something to give, no matter what our condition. We never know. We never know why something's coming around, coming about. The heart is always engaged in the process of leading the mind to places it doesn't want to go, into areas of its own darkness and limitation. And this is where you and I need faith. Some faith that it's all happening for a reason. It's all happening to take us to truth, to wake us up to the truth. 
we feel sensitive and vulnerable and defenseless. Yet we are being led through the darkness into the light. This darkness must be understood and enlightened or we will continue to live in fear and limitation. It almost seems that in some ways we have no choice. Again and again in interviews, it seems so, so often that people are judging themselves for their experiences, for their feelings, for the way they are. There was a woman on my last retreat who came in and she was feeling so sad and she said she was feeling heavy and isolated and cut off. And I looked at her and I said, I don't think it's the sadness that is making you feel heavy and isolated. I think it's your attitude towards the sadness. I think it's that you have an aversion towards the sadness, that somehow it doesn't fit what you want to be happening. It doesn't fit your self-image to be feeling this. You think that it means something about you that you don't like. The sadness itself is not heavy. The sadness has beauty. The sadness has lightness and ease. If you think that the sadness is bad, it's this thought that is heavy. It's the thought that is, is isolating and separating. It's not the feeling itself. It's the thought that cuts one off from the feeling and creates that contraction and heaviness in the body. It cuts one off from their body. These feelings, what goes through us, what moves through us, is an expression of life. It's a flow of life, and we can trust this. And it's really a gift to ourselves to feel it. In feeling it and being with our experiences, it's an offering of a gift to ourselves. There's really no reason to stop this flow of life, to stop these feelings. But we stop it because we want to control. These feelings and experiences must be participated in for the learning to come. That letting go of the control only comes from seeing the futility of the control. We can't let go of the control. We can only see clearly the suffering that it brings. This settling into the faith, the surrendering into the faith of the unknown, the faith of who we are, the truth of who we are, is an act of love. This surrender, the surrendering into truth, the surrendering into faith, is a surrendering of ego's control. It is a surrender of the I, 
a surrender of the self. It's a surrender of one's patterns, demands, expectations, fears. And love is what's there when the self is absent. Love is not another quality of self. It's not, now I'm a loving person, or I want to be a loving person. I want this love for myself. It's not a possessive love. It's not a romantic, an idealized love. It's a love which is present in self's absence. A love which is embracing, accommodating, accepting of all experience, of every moment's experience, no matter what it is. It's not a love which can be cultivated but it arises naturally from wisdom and insight. It arises naturally in seeing the folly of control, the silliness of ego's game. There's a, sh a short little poem that I love. It says from um, Angela Silesius. God, whose love and joy are present everywhere, can't come to visit you unless you aren't there. <laughs> it seems that after coming through a time of difficulty, we may experience some kind of an opening. We may find that we're not judging ourselves and others so much anymore, that there is a feeling of love for ourselves and others, and we feel more connection. We feel stronger. There is a sense of inner strength. And we're ready for the next step. But then what often happens is we do face another difficulty. And so often, people come to me and they say, I lost it. I did so much work. I really got to a good place. And now it's gone. And I'm back where I started. I'm back in fear and confusion and limitation. But I think this is an incorrect evaluation. <laughs> because this is not a sign of weakness or loss, but it is a sign of strength. It's a sign that we are ready for the next thing. We're ready to take on the next difficulty. And if we think that it's a sign of loss, it's not going to be very helpful. It's important not to get attached to experience as meaning anything about me. We can't evaluate ourselves. We can't know how we're doing. What's happening is just what's happening. What is is just what is. So let the process unfold. Just trust. Trust in what's happening. Trust faith, love, I see this as all the same. And the more this faith is, 
contacted and understood. This is the power source for transformation. This is the transforming power of love. I'd like to end with a poem by Mirabai, who is a 15th century Indian mystic and poet. And she spent most of her time singing and dancing in front of the image of Krishna. And she, I think, really points to the importance of this task. Oh, my friends, what can you tell me of love? Whose pathways are filled with strangeness? When you offer the great one your love, at the first step your body is crushed. Next to be ready to offer your head as his seat. Be ready to orbit his lamp like a moth giving it to the light. To live in the deer as she runs toward the hunter's call, in the partridge that swallows hot coals for love of the moon, in the fish that kept from the sea happily dies, like a bead trap for life in the closing of the sweet flower, Mira has offered herself to her Lord. She says, the single lotus will swallow you whole. Let's sit together for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.